It's the summer of 1985, and you've actually been allowed to go to the movies with your friends. This is a big thrill, and when you all get to the theater, you have a big decision on your hands. What do you see? It has to be one of two specific choices. The first looks right up your alley and is about a group of kids hunting for pirate treasure. But then there is another movie that's getting a lot of buzz. It stars the actor you've been watching on Family Ties and is supposed to be about traveling through time. It's a tough choice, but you're not fully aware of the person connected to these two films. And it turns out he's connected to a lot of your very favorite films of the decade. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consume, and connect it. And today, it's a look back on one of the greatest directors of our time, who gave us some of the most beloved movies ever made. This is a story of Steven Spielberg in the 80s. the course of the 1980s, Steven Spielberg directed and wrote 10 movies and was the executive producer on another 14. In just 10 years, he was directly involved with 24 movies, a majority of which are not only some of the best movies of the 1980s, but of all time. His prolific creativity in the 1980s is nothing short of astounding. But we need to start with the story of Steven Spielberg up to that point. Influenced by classic movies like Lawrence of Arabia, at the age of 13, a young Spielberg took up his own filmmaking and fully immersed himself in all things movies. In the great HBO documentary called Spielberg, the brilliant director explains how much his family had to move around growing up. Despite wanting to grow up in a normal household, Life was anything but normal, including the family owning a pet monkey. But the video camera was the sense of control Spielberg desperately craved as he continued to make his own movies. And he was quite good at it. Despite not getting into film school at USC, Spielberg eventually finagled his way into Universal Studios and quickly became known as the Uncrowned Prince. Spielberg eventually became involved in several feature films and, through the 70s, directed many television episodes. Through this early phase of his career, Spielberg also connected with fellow directors like Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, and George Lucas. But 1975 is the year that really put Spielberg on the map, with what was essentially a monster movie set in the water, Jaws. The movie was quickly becoming a disaster, and issues with the mechanical shark forced a change in direction with the film. The shark just wasn't convincing enough, often broke down, and was difficult to film with while on water. So the movie that was going to feature a lot of shark needed to scale it back. This turned out to be a blessing in disguise, as Spielberg was forced to create high tension and drama to replace scenes with the shark. The fear of the shark and the iconic Jaws theme was the real doom, more than the shark itself. Spielberg has said that when he's under pressure, that's the moment he gets his best ideas. To make Jaws work required creating a specific atmosphere and tone to convey the terror. This pushed his movie-making abilities to the limit, 
and had a profound impact on how he approached movies going forward. And it worked. Even though Jaws went triple the budget and double the shooting time, it became a massive hit and maybe the first true blockbuster movie. The lines at movie theaters were so long they were busting through the blocks and around the corners. At that time, Jaws made more money than any film ever. It made an astonishing $476 million. In today's money, that's $2.7 billion. According to Collider and adjusting for inflation, this makes Jaws the seventh highest grossing film in history. If Spielberg made the film as originally intended, it could have turned out completely different and probably not become the iconic masterpiece it did. If audiences laughed instead of feeling terror, it may have been tough for him to get more work, especially considering how over budget he went and how long it took to film. But due to the success of Jaws, Spielberg could now call his own shots. He followed up Jaws with another massive hit, 1977's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. After George Lucas released Star Wars in 1977, its phenomenal success helped motivate the competitive Spielberg in the coming decade. But Spielberg wasn't exactly stifling at the box office. Close Encounters pulled in a remarkable $300 million. That's about a billion and a half in today's money. Spielberg closed out the 70s with a unique war comedy called 1941, starring people like John Candy, Jim Belushi, and Dan Aykroyd. 1941 was also a notable film, as it connected him with Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis. Stick around for more on those two. And Spielberg begins his run in the 80s as the executive producer of a movie called Used Cars. Starring Kurt Russell, Used Cars is a satirical dark comedy of sorts about a used car lot whose original owner is killed and the hotshot salesman of the lot has to take over so the lot doesn't fall into the hands of a ruthless competitor who also happens to be the victim's brother. Used Cars wasn't a gigantic hit but made back its budget plus a few million. But one of the notable things about this movie is the people that Spielberg reconnected with from the movie 1941. Used Cars was written by Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis, with Zemeckis also serving as director. In a few years, this trio would team up yet again to give us one of the most beloved and defining movies of the 1980s that we'll cover in a bit when we get back to the year 1985. Going into 1981, Spielberg was involved in two projects, one as a producer and then the director of the first edition of one of the greatest trilogies of all time. Continental Divide is the movie he executive produced, and it's a romantic comedy that starred Jim Belushi. Continental Divide wasn't a massive hit, but another moneymaker at the box office. But this romantic comedy is very significant for two specific reasons. The first is that it was the very first movie to be produced by Spielberg's production company, Amblin Entertainment. The second notable thing about Continental Divide is that it was written by Lawrence Kasdan. Kasdan also wrote The Empire Strikes Back, The Return of the Jedi, 
and the next movie in 1981 that Spielberg directed. Steven Spielberg's 1980s directorial debut is a movie about a swashbuckling archaeologist in a style of film that paid tribute to the action-adventure B-movies of old. Starring the actor we all now knew as Han Solo, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in the summer of 1981. And the summer was very slowly starting to become the time of year when studios released big-time movies. And Steven Spielberg would play a huge role in that. Raiders of the Lost Ark combined a lot of great talent. Harrison Ford starred as a unique new action star for the 80s. It was written by Lawrence Kasdan. George Lucas helped create the story and Spielberg directed. This new Indiana Jones character was compelling. The movie itself felt like it could have come out in multiple decades as it used traditional storytelling and filmmaking similar to the films Spielberg grew up on. Raiders of the Lost Ark was an instant hit and an instant classic. Spielberg seemed to have a unique knack for making critically acclaimed films that were also box office successes. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark pulled in nearly $400 million at the box office. When you consider that the average movie ticket in 1981 was about $2.78, a lot of people saw this film. Convert that box office revenue in today's money and we're in the ballpark of $1.3 billion. If you want some more on Indiana Jones, I have a previous episode all about those movies and the fact that the character may have been based on a real person. In 1981, it seemed as if Spielberg had already hit the heights of movie-making success but 1982 was about to take that to a whole new level. 1982 is the year Steven Spielberg shared some things from his childhood with the entire world and, again, gave us two all-time classics, one he directed and the other he wrote. In the HBO documentary, Spielberg explains how his father often took him out to the country to watch meteor showers. This developed his great love of space and the sky. He was always interested in extraterrestrial creatures and how they might interact with us, something he explored in Close Encounters. But for his next movie, this interest was going to get much more personal. If there are extraterrestrials, it doesn't mean they're all going to be destructive creatures hell-bent on capturing the Earth like in War of the Worlds. They may just be small, friendly, and capable of love. And that's what we experienced in E.T. Released in June of 1982, E.T. was a way for Spielberg to explore the hurt he experienced because of the separation of his parents. This is reflected through the character of E.T. having to leave young Elliot, but promises he will always be there with him. And according to Spielberg, that's the essence of this movie. How do you fill the heart of a lonely child. I mentioned earlier how the group of directors, including George Lucas, Scorsese, and Coppola, all pushed each other to make the best films possible. George Lucas had reached the upper echelons of box office success with Star Wars, but with E.T., Spielberg surpassed him. If you were around in 1982, I don't have to tell you what a phenomenon E.T. was. It was an immediate hit, 
staying number one at the box office for six weeks. It was only surpassed at the top position by a movie franchise I have a previous episode all about, Friday the 13th, Part 3. But eventually, E.T. surpassed Star Wars as the highest grossing film of all time. According to Box Office Mojo, by 1983, E.T. eventually made a staggering $792 million. Adjust this for inflation, and it's around $2.5 billion. This makes it one of the most successful movies ever made. And referring back to that list on Collider, E.T. is the fourth highest grossing film of all time when adjusted for inflation. And in my opinion, E.T. is also one of the best films ever made. Spielberg has said that as a kid, everything scared him, including a tree outside his bedroom window. A movie like Poltergeist was a way to explore those fears and maybe scare moviegoers in the process. Poltergeist is about a family that is visited by ghosts. It seems as if the ghosts are friendly, but eventually we learn they aren't, and they begin to terrorize the entire family. Poltergeist wasn't a gigantic hit like his previous offerings, but was still a hit. It was also nominated for a few Oscars, including Best Visual Effects and Best Original Score. Poltergeist features some iconic imagery, and two simple words, they're here, became one of the most famous lines in movie history. As 1982 comes to a close, one thing is perfectly clear. Steven Spielberg seemed to have an uncanny ability to know exactly what moviegoers wanted to see. After the phenomenal success that was 1982, in 1983, Spielberg stuck with just one movie, Twilight Zone the movie. If you've never seen the Twilight Zone the movie, it's pretty unique. The original TV series from Rod Serling is paid tribute to through four segments, each one directed by someone different. Those directors were John Landis, Joe Dante, George Miller, and Steven Spielberg. Released in June 1983, Twilight Zone the movie is a love letter to the original series. Spielberg's segment of the movie called Kick the Can is a remake of one of the old episodes, and his segment starred Scatman Crothers, a.k.a. Dick Holleran from The Shining. We're about to hit 1984, and for the next four straight years, Steven Spielberg is about to go on a run that brought us some of the greatest movies of the entire decade. Everything 80s will return after these messages. It's now 1984, and it's time for the follow-up to Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out in May 1984 and was the hotly anticipated follow-up to the original. The Temple of Doom is still a really great film, but if you remember when it first came out, you'll recall how much more violent and intense it was. It's not that Raiders of the Lost Ark wasn't violent, but the Temple of Doom took it to a new level. Both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were going through a lot of anguish and turmoil in their personal lives, and this is reflected in what we saw on screen. 
The New York Times reported that many wondered, including a lot of parents, if the Temple of Doom was way too violent for its simple PG rating. Eventually, Paramount had to release warnings in newspapers saying that, quote, this film may be too intense for younger viewers. Some of the scenes include a person having their heart ripped out of their chest and people being boiled alive in lava. And this is all very notable because, at the time, there wasn't a middle ground rating between PG and R. It was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, as well as the next movie I'm about to cover, that was responsible for the creation of the PG-13 rating. And that next movie is one written by Chris Columbus, directed by Joe Dante, and produced by Steven Spielberg. It's a movie that Chris Columbus thought up one night while living in a loft and hearing what he assumed were mice running around. He envisioned that what he heard were some sort of small, strange creatures. He also thought there hadn't been a good monster movie for a while. As Columbus explains in an interview with Alec Baldwin, he put together a script that, through pure chance, ended up on the exact right place on the desk of Spielberg's secretary right as Spielberg walked by it. And Spielberg thought the title looked interesting. That script was called Gremlins, one of my all-time favorite 80s movies. Gremlins was yet another hit that finished just behind the Temple of Doom for highest box office revenue for 1984, one of the best years for movies in the entire decade. And this was pretty impressive considering it was made on a pretty small budget of about $11 million. Gremlins, the classic dark comedy horror film, which, like Die Hard, is a Christmas movie, by the way, also pushed the boundaries of on-screen gore. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out in May, and Gremlins, also with a PG rating, came out in June. But not long after these films, and primarily because of them, the new PG-13 rating was unveiled. And Spielberg was even involved in that process. So, trivia time, the very first PG-13 rated film, Red Dawn starring Patrick Swayze, released just a few months later. Also in Gremlins, we get one of the few Steven Spielberg cameos, as you can see him riding a big tricycle-type thing at the science convention that Billy's dad is at. And in one of the bedroom scenes, you can also see a rolled-up poster in the background for Twilight Zone, the movie. 1985 may be the best and most significant year when it comes to Spielberg in the 80s. And we start with the film that was a unique departure from the last few years of big blockbusters. Yes, Steven Spielberg was box office gold. But could he do something more serious and artistic? The Color Purple was Spielberg's most mature film yet. Starring Oprah Winfrey, Whoopi Goldberg, and Danny Glover, The Color Purple was based on a book of the same name. In the HBO documentary, we learn how Spielberg wanted to create a matriarchal African-American worldview in the presence of patriarchal oppression and violence. The Color Purple was that unique departure Spielberg was looking for to challenge himself as a filmmaker. 
And it was yet another box office success, making nearly $100 million on a budget of just 15. With a soundtrack created by the legendary Quincy Jones, this was the first film where Spielberg didn't use another music legend, John Williams. Next, in 1985, we have one of the definitive 1980s movies, and we're back with Chris Columbus, who one day was sitting in Spielberg's office as Spielberg was looking through some old comics. Spielberg points out one interesting comic called The Goon Children. The two came up with a story about a group of kids on the hunt for pirate treasure. The Goonies came out in June 1985 and quickly became one of those quintessential 1980s films adored by an entire generation. Directed by Richard Donner, the director of other classics like Superman, Superman 2, Lethal Weapon, and Scrooged, The Goonies was in the top 10 highest grossing films of 1985. After writing Goonies together, Columbus and Spielberg then wrote their next project, Young Sherlock Holmes. This is the origin story of how Sherlock Holmes and Watson met as boys in an English boarding school. Because of all the other big movies in 1985, young Sherlock Holmes may have been easy to miss, but it was still a success. Not a colossal one, but made around 60 million plus on a budget of around 18. But young Sherlock Holmes is quite significant in the history of movies for one specific reason especially around the 23-minute mark, where a knight emerges from a stained-glass window to attack someone. According to IMDb, this was the very first usage of a full CGI character in a theatrical movie. And now Spielberg teams back up with Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis. One day, while visiting his parents' house, Bob Gale was flipping through his dad's old yearbooks and saw what his father looked like in high school. He then wondered if he and his dad would have been friends if they grew up together and went to high school together. This was the impetus for a little time travel movie called Back to the Future. Written by Gale and Zemeckis and directed by Zemeckis, Back to the Future was originally rejected multiple times until they turned to Steven Spielberg and Amblin Entertainment. Back to the Future, which was pitched at one time to be called Spaceman from Pluto, came out in July 1985 and was the runaway hit for the year, beating out other big films like Beverly Hills Cop, Rambo 2, and Rocky IV. In 1986, we don't have an offering from Spielberg from a directing standpoint, but he was involved with two movies as an executive producer, or co-executive producer. And they really couldn't be more different. One was another comedy, and the other, a pretty beloved animated film. The first is one I consider a great underrated comedy, The Money Pit. Starring Tom Hanks and Shelley Long, The Money Pit is simply about a couple trying to renovate a house. Consider it the predecessor to all HGTV home renovation shows. I remember seeing this movie as a kid and thinking it was the funniest thing I had ever seen. And then next up in 1986 is an animated film about a young mouse separated from his family. 
An American Tale followed that classic Spielberg theme of separation and reunification. The main character of Fievel is also named after Spielberg's grandfather. An American Tale was executive produced by Spielberg and directed by Don Bluth, who has a connection to a previous episode of mine, The Black Cauldron. If you were a kid in the 1980s, there's a good chance you saw An American Tale at some point, as it was quite a big hit, and perfectly released during the holiday season of 1986. For many people I know, this was the very first movie they ever saw in theaters. And the memorable song, Somewhere Out There, was even nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song. It's now 1987, and Spielberg directs one film and produces two others. And again, we get a few drastically different movies. We'll start with the producer's side and one of my favorite unsung movies of the 1980s, Batteries Not Included. In this movie, a group of tenants is forced to move out of their apartment block so the block can be demolished. They don't want to move, so the developers hire some muscle to persuade them. But while this is happening, some mechanical alien life forms come to visit and help the tenants defeat the developers. The thing I love about this movie is the simple tagline. Five ordinary people needed a miracle. Then, one night, Faye Riley left the window open. According to IMDb, Batteries Not Included was going to be a story for the TV show Amazing Stories. But Spielberg liked the idea so much that he decided to make it into a theatrical release. Batteries Not Included doesn't stand shoulder to shoulder with the heavyweight movies of the 1980s, but it's movies like this that I still often think of fondly when I think back to the films of the 80s. Next, in 1987, is Inner Space. Directed by Joe Dante from Gremlins and starring Dennis Quaid, Martin Short, Meg Ryan, and Kevin McCarthy, who played R.J. Fletcher in UHF, Inner Space is like a tribute to the classic film Fantastic Voyage. Spielberg was the executive producer, and Inner Space was a moderate hit, but won an Oscar for Best Visual Effects. And rounding out 1987 is a movie that is not underrated by any means, but when it comes to all the big-time Spielberg movies, sometimes doesn't get mentioned alongside the big blockbusters. And that movie is Empire of the Sun. Released in December 1987 and starring a young Christian Bale as a character with a great first name, Empire of the Sun is about a young boy living in Shanghai who gets separated from his parents during World War II. This forces him to have to grow up quickly. In Empire of the Sun, Spielberg wanted to explore war through the eyes of a child. In the HBO documentary, Spielberg explains that the essence of this movie is about a lost boy trying to find his way in this world. And quote, it's about growing up too quickly and abandoning everything you once used to keep yourself safe. Unquote. With Empire of the Sun, some critics thought Spielberg was trying to get too serious, but it still made money and was also nominated for five Academy Awards. And that takes us into 1988. From a directorial standpoint, 
1988 was another year off for Spielberg, but that's probably because he was involved in two seminal movies, especially if you were of a certain age in 1988. And they're both animated. Well, sort of. We start with the fully animated one, the beloved Land Before Time. This movie is about an orphan dinosaur in search of the legendary Great Valley. This is where dinosaurs can live in peace, and on his voyage, he meets some other dinosaurs, and they all have to work together in order to survive. The Land Before Time is another Don Bluth-Steven Spielberg collaboration, but it was also executive produced by George Lucas. Like an American tale, The Land Before Time was released during the holiday season of 1988 and was another box office success. The more time goes by, the more astonishing Who Framed Roger Rabbit becomes. Not just from a technical and hand-drawn animated aspect, but from a litigious one. Getting several studios to lend their licensed characters to another production seems as if it would be impossible today. But Steven Spielberg made it happen. A tribute to old Hollywood and the golden age of animation, Who Framed Roger Rabbit combined characters from Disney, Warner Brothers, MGM Cartoons, Fleischer Studios, 20th Century Fox, Universal Pictures, and RKO Pictures. Based on a 1981 novel called Who Censored Roger Rabbit, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was executive produced by Spielberg and directed by Robert Zemeckis. So how is it possible to get the most beloved animated characters of all time in one movie together? According to The Hollywood Reporter, the CEO of Disney, Michael Eisner, once worked at Paramount and worked with Spielberg on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Spielberg agreed to return the favor by producing Who Framed Roger Rabbit and bringing in a team from George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic. Spielberg did this as long as Amblin Entertainment and Disney split the profits 50-50. And because he was Steven Spielberg, The Hollywood Reporter states that he was able to convince all these studios to lend their characters for just $5,000 per character. It's unbelievable and absolute peanuts in the grand scheme of things as Who Framed Roger Rabbit was the second highest grossing film of 1988, bringing in $330 million or about $850 million today. Steven Spielberg finished off the 1980s with an absolute bang as he was involved with five different movies that year. Let's start on the producer's side. The first is an animated Roger Rabbit short called Tummy Trouble. The next is a movie called Dad, starring Jack Lemmon and Ted Danson. Then, there is the incredibly anticipated sequel to Back to the Future. Back to the Future 2 took us into the future, then back into the past, as we got to experience the original movie from a different vantage point. Released in November 1989, it was hard to live up to the original, but Back to the Future 2 was still one of the highest-grossing films of the year. Spielberg also pays tribute to himself and his family in one scene. 
When Marty is in Hill Valley in 2015, he encounters a 3D billboard of one of Spielberg's movies, Jaws. But in 2015, this is Jaws 19, and it's directed by Max Spielberg, the son of Steven. And before we finish with our last movie of the 80s, there's one other lesser-known Spielberg film from 1989, the movie Always. Starring Richard Dreyfuss and Audrey Hepburn in her final role, Always is a fantasy romantic drama about the ghost of a recently deceased pilot who mentors a new pilot while watching him fall in love with his former girlfriend. Always is a remake of the 1943 film A Guy Named Joe. And we finish off Spielberg in the 80s with the final chapter, or so we thought at the time, of the series he began the decade directing, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. To me, this is the perfect movie. It's action, adventure, mystery, and comedy, all perfectly combined while moving at a breathless pace. The Last Crusade was a gigantic hit during a summer of gigantic hits finishing second only behind Batman for the highest-grossing film of 1989. At the end of The Last Crusade, as Indiana and his crew ride off into the sunset together, it was also the perfect symbolism to bring to close the end of a truly astonishing decade of Steven Spielberg films. Of course, it didn't stop there. Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, his legacy only continued to grow. But in the 80s, Steven Spielberg changed movie making forever. And for many of us, and probably you if you're listening to a podcast about the 80s, he created the movies of your childhood. When I think of Spielberg movies in the 80s, the word that just keeps coming to mind is magical. These movies were like watching magic at the movie theaters and in our living rooms. They were enchanting, scary, uplifting, heart-wrenching, and exciting. But mainly, they were unforgettable. The movies of Steven Spielberg are why we go to movies, and there is no one like him. Steven Spielberg is movies. He created that pure escapist fun that opened our imaginations. By using such simple, classic and deeply personal themes, his movies, especially those of the 80s, remain timeless. At the heart of most of his stories is that simple theme of separation and reunification. As Spielberg himself says, ultimately, many of his stories are simply about family, and I think that's why they resonate with us so much. The movies of Steven Spielberg are the ones we return back to again and again as a comfort food of sorts. I know they sure are for me. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. So be sure to dive back into my earlier episodes. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Everything 80s podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so we can keep taking these trips back in time together. And if you love movies, you may want to check out the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast over at patreon.com. That's where I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1980s movies. 
And I've covered a few that were mentioned in this episode, including Back to the Future 2, The Empire Strikes Back, Beverly Hills Cop, UHF, and Scrooged, among many others. So if you want to check that out or learn more, you can head to patreon.com slash 80s. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash 80s. Tell them Large Marge sent you. Oh yeah, I've also reviewed Pee-wee's Big Adventure there too. So that's it for me. Thank you for listening. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.